want to know the will of God, you need to know God. God is the goal. And coming to know what He wants you to do comes from knowing Him. He speaks through relationship. He's the good shepherd. We're the sheep who know His voice. How? Because we know Him. And because we know Him, we recognize when it is that He's speaking to us in one or more of these six different ways. We understand what it is that He's saying when He does speak to us in one or more of these six different ways. And we even kind of get a glimpse of how passionate He is about what He's saying to us. As we get to know Him better and better and even begin to feel the nuances of communicating with the Lord our God. And so we've come around these six different ways, and we've laid out four of the six. So we said, for example, if you want to know the will of God for your life, the first question, the starting point always is what does God's Word say? Why? Because the number one way that God speaks to us today is through His Word. It really is just that simple. And again, sometimes He speaks directly to us, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this. You know, you don't need to read that and then wonder, oh man, I wonder if the Lord wants me to do this. I'm going to go with yes. You know, thou shalt. That suggests an answer, doesn't it? He speaks to us in black and white on so many different issues in life, but then he speaks indirectly too. Do I marry Jim or not? Well, you're not going to read in the Bible, thou shalt marry Jim, thou shalt not marry Jim, but you're going to read a lot about marriage, about husband, about wife, about mother, about father, about parenting, where God and His Word clearly establishes categories of thought by which you can weigh that decision. He doesn't leave us wondering. He gives us so much in His Word. However, if after going to His Word, you're still wondering, okay, hey, God, what do you want me to do? Because I'm not really feeling like I'm getting the answer here. Well, then and only then you go to the second question, which is what? It's what does my heart say? Now, that's interesting, isn't it? But David comes to us in the Psalm, Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Now, what is he speaking to there? He's speaking to relationship. Make God your pursuit. Make knowing God your treasure. Make pursuing God the delight of your heart. Make Him your goal, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Why? Because your mind will become more like His mind, and your heart will become more like His heart, and your character as He spiritually forms and shapes you through relationship, through His Word, will become more like His character, and as a result of all those things, your desires are going to become more like His desires. You're going to stop desiring some things you never thought you'd stop desiring, and you're going to start desiring some things you never thought you'd start desiring. God will take His desires out of His heart, and He will implant them into your heart, and then He gets to do what is so awesome from his perspective. He gets to give you exactly what both you and he desire. What a great system. But what if you ask that question and you examine your heart and you're still not sure? Hey, God, what do you want me to do? Well, then and only then you go to question number three. What does wise counsel say? And we talked about who wise counselors are and then who they're not. And it ruled out a lot of people, didn't it? We started looking at who we go to for advice and went, huh, well, hmm. It's a biblical fact that God speaks to His people through His people, but He doesn't speak through just any people. You need to seek out people who are established followers of Jesus, who are really and truly going to tell it to you like it is. They're going to tell you what, they, what you need to hear and not what they and you both know that you really want to hear and who have been where you want to go. 
So they have some expertise to offer you in this area. But what happens when after going to God's Word and examining your heart and then consulting with wise counsel, you're still saying, well, Lord, I, you know, I don't get it. I mean, hey, God, what, what, what do you want me to do? Well, then, question number four, what do my circumstances say? Now, why is that significant? Because we have a God who is sovereign over all things, including even the minutest details of our lives. And sometimes in those circumstances, we can begin to discern patterns. They suggest an answer to the question. In fact, sometimes they do more than suggest the answer. Sometimes they stand up with a billboard and go, hey, are you kidding me? Look at how God has worked in your life. It's so obvious that you're supposed to do this or not this. But what if after all of that, you're still wondering? Well, that's where we left off, and it's where we're going to pick up today. If after asking, what does God's Word say, you don't know, and then what does my heart say, you still don't know, and then what does wise counsel say, and now you're still confused, and you've looked at your circumstances, and you're going, could be this, could be this, what do you do? Then and only then do you get to question number five. Hear the number. It's the fifth question. You never reach it if it's already answered before you get there. And question number five is, what does my own good sense say? Now, why is that significant? Because here's the thing. God has given each one of us a brain. He has made us all intelligent creatures. And He's given us all a lifetime full of sovereignly ordained lessons and experiences. And when He fails to speak to us through one of these other ways that I've already enumerated... Well, then he expects for us to use them. So if after going to God's Word and examining your heart and consulting with wise counsel and surveying your circumstances, you're still wondering what it is that you're supposed to do, then ask yourself, what does my own good sense say? Because God sometimes uses our own good sense to tell us or to let us figure out what it is that he would have us to do next. Lots of biblical examples of this. You think, for example, of the book of Ezra, and if you know the story, God has so uniquely ordained the circumstances, it's so clear that He's at work, He allows His people to return from captivity to rebuild the temple, and He gives them a great deal of wealth to do it. They have all this silver and gold. They have a capital stewardship campaign. They set a number for the rebuilding of the temple, and they way exceed it. How often does that happen? So they're really excited, but that creates an issue. It creates a question. Hey, God, what do you want us to do with the excess? Because we've got this delta here in our fundraising, now what? And what is the word of the Lord through the mouth of this king whose heart he is so clearly directing all the way through the story? The king says this in Ezra 7, verse 18. He says, whatever seems good to you. Do you hear that? Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God. What he's saying is, if after going to God's word, if after examining your heart, if after consulting with wise counsel, if after surveying your circumstances you still don't know what to do, then use your own good sense. God has given you a good brain and all kinds of lessons and experiences. And if He hasn't otherwise directed you, well, then He expects you to use them. We see it again with David. He's trying to figure out what to do with the ark. You know, he's going to bring it up and how do we do this and all of this stuff. What does he say? First Chronicles 13, verse 2. He says, if it seems good to you, he's speaking to the people. If it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, well, then here's my plan. Let us send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel as well as to the priests and Levites and the cities that have pasture lands that they may be gathered to us. We're going to get everybody together 
And then let us bring again the ark of our God, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And then what does it say? Because I think it's significant. It says all the assembly agreed to do so. And here's why. For the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. It made sense to them. I mean, God hadn't directed them in his word. Here's how you do this. He hadn't said through their hearts, here's how you do this. He hadn't said through wise count, you know, it made sense to them. We see it again in Acts 15. The apostles and elders gather together to decide an issue that threatens to divide the church. So they hold a council in Jerusalem. And they decide the matter, and now they need to disseminate their opinion, but they want to do it through delegates. How do they choose these delegates? Acts 15, verse 22, it says, Then it seemed good. It made sense to the apostles and the elders with the whole church, everybody agreed, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And so they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers. And it makes sense that you would send leading men among the brothers. They used their own good sense. The point being that if after going to God's Word, examining your heart, consulting with wise counsel, and looking at your circumstances, you still don't know what God would have you to do, well, then and only then, ask yourself, what does my own good sense say? Because God has given you a brain and a lifetime full of lessons and experiences, and in those circumstances, He requires you then to use them. Okay? But let me give you a few caveats, kind of a few cautionary ideas. I think, first of all, in deciding what your own good sense is saying, you're down to this and now you're making a decision. You need to be sure that your decision is consistent with who you are, with who God has made you to be, and also with who you're not. You know, one of the great axioms of wisdom, and I quote this all the time, it comes out of the pagan world, hope that doesn't freak you out. I think that it's very much consistent with biblical wisdom. It's the inscription at the Oracle of Delphi, and it simply says, know thyself. Know thyself. Now work that through. Know who you are, and conversely, and just as importantly, know who you're not. Know what your strengths and weaknesses are. Know what your likes and dislikes are. Know what your abilities are and what your abilities aren't what talents you have and what talents you really and truly don't have, not what talents you would like to have and claim to have, but what you really have and don't, what gifts you really have, what gifts you don't have, what truly energizes you and what drains you, what drives you and what drives you into the ground. Know who you are and who you're not and be honest about that and then survey the options And make your decision, know thyself, and adamantly refuse to pretend to be someone that God has not created you to be. We had an awesome staff member here for a number of years, and he came to us out of college, and he got married, and he came with his wife, and she was, you know, equally great and still is. And he came into our student ministries, and he took over our student ministries, and he built a great student ministry. But when he came to us, he originally came to us with the idea that he wanted someday to be a senior pastor of a church. And this is a guy, by the way, who is really good at a lot of things. And that can make life confusing. I don't struggle with that. I'm modestly good at very few things. And you know what? I embrace that. I'll tell you what I don't do. I don't waste any time trying to get good at things that God has not made me good at. None. Zero. I find other people who are good at that. That's their sweet spot in life. I surround myself with them. 
and they do it so much better than me. God has made me modestly good at only about two things, and I pour all of my energy and effort into being the very best I can be at what He's created me to be best at. Well, this guy was good at everything. And he came with the idea of becoming a senior pastor, and I watched him grow and develop and do this amazing job over the course of about four or five years. And finally, I sat down with him one day, and I said, you know, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I know that you want to be the senior pastor of a church someday. I think you'll be great at it if that's the way you go. I'm just not sure it's you. And let me explain. I said, as I've watched you develop... And I've come to see what you're very best at, and not just what you're very best at, but what you're really passionate about, what really turns your crank, what your sweet spot in life is, what energizes you no matter how difficult it is versus what drains you no matter how easy it might be. I'm here to tell you, if you become the senior pastor of a church, you're going to spend 95% of your time doing what drives you into the ground and 5% maybe doing what drives you. And I think you should be the executive pastor of a church. And he kind of took that really well. And, you know, a couple months later, he came back and said, boy, you know, been thinking about that. And maybe you're right. And a while after that, he then ultimately became our executive pastor, did a terrific job. Now he's the executive pastor somewhere else. And what role do you think he will be happiest in? It's the sweet spot, isn't it? And more importantly than that, where will he be most effective for the kingdom of God? It's in doing what God has made him to do, and he has the wisdom to embrace that. Not to try to be somebody God hasn't made him to be, but to be the person God has made him to be. And wow, what a difference he is making and will make over the course of his life for God's kingdom. It's awesome. So in deciding what your own good sense is saying... Be sure that your decision is consistent with who you are. And then secondly, don't forget that this is question number five. It's not question number one, two, three, or four, and that is absolutely enormous. The problem, generally speaking, is not that we don't ask ourselves what makes sense to us. The problem, generally speaking, is that that is the only question that we ask. That for us becomes question one, and then question two, and then question three, and then question four, and then question five. And as a result of that, our lives don't look any different from the lives of anyone else, and why should they? We make our decisions the same way everyone else does and shame on us for that. We are not called to live our lives based upon what makes sense to us. We are called to live our lives by faith. And we only are to ask this question of what makes good sense to me if God has failed to otherwise direct us through His Word, through our hearts, through wise counsel, or through our circumstances. It's number five. Most of the time, we don't even reach this question, but the gravitational pull of each one of our self-interested hearts is to elevate it way above where it really ought to be. So when it comes to discerning the will of God, first question, what does God's Word say? Then and only if you don't get the answer there, what does my heart say? Okay, still confused? Go to question three. What does wise counsel say? If you're still not sure, what do my circumstances say? Then if all else fails, what makes good sense to me? Which leaves only one last question, which I was very much tempted to leave out. Number six, has God spoken to me directly about this? And just to be clear, what I mean by directly is directly. 
Our God is a supernatural God, and there are many examples, both in the Bible and history, of Him breaking miraculously into the lives of people and speaking directly to them. It is incredibly rare that that occurs. I suspect that it is far more rare than most of us think and than many people claim. But if we're talking about the way that God speaks, I want to at least acknowledge that that might be one of them. But what I give with the one hand, I'm going to quickly take away with the other, because listen to this. When you go to the New Testament, you do not find any examples of anyone crying out to God where they lay an issue on the table and they say, Lord, I want to know what you want me to do with this. What is the answer to this particular question? And then of God breaking miraculously into their lives and answering that question. There are many examples of him speaking directly to people through visions and all that kind of stuff, but under very different circumstances. So, you know, has God spoken to me directly about this? Well, A, I'm not sure that He ever will. And B, just as a cautionary statement, if He does, you can rest assured that you'll know that it's Him, you'll know what He said, and He will not add to anything that He has said in this book called the Bible, and neither will He contradict it. I think the reality is that if you're trying to discern God's will, biblically speaking, You need to work through those first five questions. What does the Word say? Okay, then what does my heart say? All right, still not clear. What does wise counsel say? Still a little confused. What do my circumstances say? All right, all else has failed. And only if all else has failed. Well, then what does my own good sense say? Because God has given me a brain as well as you and all kinds of lessons and experiences. And if He fails to direct otherwise, then and only then are we to employ them to figure out what he would have us to do next. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, it occurred to me that uh, even though we have literally sent out probably hundreds of people from this church on short-term missions trips, I've personally never been on one, and I've personally never been on one for one very simple reason. I'm too busy. Seriously, that was it. You know, my schedule does not permit it, so I really had no thought of ever doing it. My job is send you on trips. It's not go on trips. Made no sense to me. Not that that's actually relevant, being question number five and all. (laughs) And I started feeling a little convicted about the fact that, you know, I mean, I haven't ever been on a trip. You know, somebody would say to me, hey, Tom, what trips have you been on? Like Matt's been on 60 or something. Well, uh, I went down to Miami once. You know, I... Nothing. Zero. So I started thinking, Lord, you know, do you want me to go on a trip? Because if I'm looking at my calendar, I mean, I realize that's question number five. It's not making any sense to me, but, you know, I mean, do you you really, you know, and I go to God's Word, and it never said anywhere, thou shalt go on a short-term missions trip, Tom. But it certainly is consistent with His redemptive plans and purposes, isn't it? Our God is a missionary God. His heart is the heart of a missionary. That needs to be my heart. It needs to be your heart. So I started to pray about it, and it started to become the desire of my heart. But let me be real clear on what my desire was and wasn't. I did not, and don't laugh just yet, want to go on a construction-related missions trip. I knew you wanted to laugh, but, but let me explain why. It's not because I'm afraid of construction work. I am the son of a developer. I did construction every summer, every winter, and every spring, all the way through high school and college. I have worked more construction work as a laborer on a construction site 
than most of you added together, seriously. And there's dignity to that work. It's not beneath me to do it. It's not the point. And it's not because I don't believe in those trips. Person after person after person after person here today would stand up and say that was the single greatest experience of their life. Here's why my heart was to do something else. It's because I recognize that I have been given amazing educational opportunity and advantages here as a pastor in the United States and and even in particular than so many of my brothers and sisters who are way out on the mission field, front line of civilization type stuff, ever have had or ever will have. So I wanted to do something that I could uniquely do. I wanted to go find a group of these pastors and give them just some small bit of the blessing that I've been given. Do a teaching trip is the idea. But, you know, I mean, how do you find that? And by the way, it doesn't work with my schedule. So I didn't give it a lot of thought because I'm thinking question number five is... Question number one, apparently. So fast forward a couple of months. I haven't thought a lot about it, but that is the desire. That's sort of the unique idea that I've got. I have no idea. I've done nothing with it. I've said nothing to anyone about it. I haven't even mentioned it to my wife because it's crazy. I go to the graduation at Knox Theological Seminary where I serve on the board of directors. And I went to help confer a doctoral degree on Dr. John Sorensen, who's a friend of mine, And he's also the president of Evangelism Explosion. So after the graduation ceremony and the reception, he comes over to me and we're talking and he says, you know, he says, we have this new educational program that we're now starting with our international field workers, which by the way, Tom, are mostly pastors way out in the middle of nowhere. And what we're going to do is we're going to begin to bring them in and we'll do like a week of training and then we're going to offer to them a second week if they'll be willing to stay. And we want to bring in people who will train them in theology. Would that be something you might be interested in? And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And then he said, we're thinking about sending you to Malawi. And he mentioned the word staying in a hut. (laughs) This is where my delicate sensibilities do come out. He said hut, and then he kept speaking. And all I could think about is hearing mosquitoes buzzing. Do they have toilet paper? I mean, I've got all these thoughts. Camping is the Holiday Inn for me, folks. And so, I, you know, notwithstanding the hut thing, and I'm developing a rash just thinking about it, I, I said, you know, uh, if you're serious, I'll, I would very seriously consider it. And then I didn't hear for anything from him, which was good for me, because question number five is telling me it makes no sense. Then I read a book called Radical by David Platt. We had all our new officers read it. We had our staff read it. I highly recommend it. And he brings up this idea. He does this exact thing. And I thought, wow, Lord, you're trying to tell me something here. Fast forward another month or two. John Sorensen calls me. He says, Tom, I've got the teaching opportunity for you. We've got it all lined up. We're going to train them for a week. We're going to, hopefully, if you'll do it, bring you in for a week of theology. Here's the topic we want you to teach on. We want you to teach on how to interpret the Bible and then how to communicate the Bible. And I thought to myself, if I could have picked it myself, that would have been it. It's unbelievable. And then he says, and we want you to do it in our training center in, you know, and I'm drum roll and I'm swatting mosquitoes, you know, and in Fiji, he says. And I said, that's how you know it's from the Lord right there. sends you to Fiji. He doesn't send you to Fiji. He sends me to Fiji. 
I'm not kidding. He said, we have this great deal with the resort on the, you know, and we get to, it's like a hundred dollars and you can stay there. And I'm thinking, (laughs) this is unbelievable. Phenomenal. So I said, you know what? Give me a week and let me pray about it and think about it. Usually, by the way, in the Christian community, when you go to somebody and say, will you do something? They said, I'm going to pray about it. I just write that down as a no. I start thinking about who else is coming because that's code for no. Um, But I really did pray about it. And I'm looking at my schedule and thinking, this is nuts. They want me to go in February. I'm already going to Israel and Egypt in November. So now I'm going to miss two weeks there. I'm going to miss two weeks here. I've got the holidays. I have crazy, crazy schedule already. It's just not making any sense to me at all. But again, that's the wrong question, isn't it? So I go to my accountability group that I meet with roughly once a month, three of our elders, and I explain to them what I just explained to you. And then I start pulling out my schedule and kind of poo-pooing the whole idea. And they're like, what are you, crazy? I mean, of course, this is a total no-brainer. You have to go do this. You should bring it up to the session. I said, oh, no, 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 bad idea. No, let's not do that. So I don't put it on the agenda. So one of them brings it up, sneaks it in. Hey, Tom, why don't you tell us the session about your Fiji opportunity? I thought, oh, man. (laughs) Motion to send Tom to Fiji and pay for the ticket. Second, any discussion? I'm going, yeah, I've got that. All in favor? Aye. Any opposed? No. Motion unanimously carries. This guy looks at me and goes, guess you're going to Fiji. (laughs) And I did, but now think about that calling for a minute, it's consistent with God's Word, is it not? It's the desire of my heart. Perfectly matched, really. I should have stopped there, but I'm confusing it with question five, aren't I? A question I shouldn't even get to. Wise counsel says, come on, are you kidding? How long do we have to spend on this topic? The whole session says, Shh, let's just vote on this and move on. What about the circumstances? I mean, the Lord was really gracious to me, wasn't he? Even condescended to accommodate my delicate sensibilities. It's ridiculous the way this thing worked out. It's amazing. And no, God did not speak to me directly about it, but I'm not sure that that's the way he operates on issues like this. I don't sit around waiting for him to do that. I don't think you ought to either. I don't expect him to do that. I don't think you ought to either. It's very rare, very. And truthfully, with all that he did say, I really wasn't unclear on what he wanted me to do. So last month I went to Fiji. Somehow during the Christmas season and all that stuff, I put 30 hours of training material together. And I went and met with like 40 different field workers for Evangelism Explosion, the overwhelming majority of them pastors, all of them teachers and leaders in their communities, many of them leading in communities and villages on the outskirts of civilization, some not. A lot of them don't have, you know, electricity. The one guy didn't even have running water in his house. He would get water in a 40-gallon jug and drag it on a rubber tire behind an ox back to his house. That's the water for the day. What a beautiful guy he is. Amazing, godly, beautiful people. I wish I could have brought them all here today so you could meet them. Sold out to Christ. I think I learned more from them 
then they learned from me, and God was clearly in it. I mean, he blessed the week. When we finished the whole teaching piece, the guy who had organized everything said, you know, I want to just take a little bit of time here. And he said, if anybody wants to talk about what this week of training has meant to you, um, that would be great. And person after person got up, and, and some of them just literally wept that a church in Fort Lauderdale would care enough about guys who have not been to Bible school, and many of them not to high school even. They're very bright, but they haven't had the advantages that I have. Most of them have no library. Most of them don't even have the study Bible that we sell here on Sundays. Right now, I'm trying to figure out how much it would cost to ship every single one of them one of those Bibles because they all speak English. It was overwhelming. I didn't have a category for it. When we got to the end, they all laid hands on me and on the guy, Dr. Woody Lahara from Evangelism Explosion, who runs the whole program, and they prayed God's blessing on us and gave me a stack of letters that are like treasure to me. They're sitting on my desk. What would I have missed if the only question I gave any attention to at all was what makes good sense to me. What have I missed in the overwhelming number of times that the only question that I've asked is what makes good sense to me? And what are you missing? We are not called to live our lives based on what makes good sense to us. Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him. Does that make good sense? But he heard the voice of the Lord. He never reached question number five. Hey, Joshua, you're going up against Jericho. You're a brand new leader. It's a fortress city. I have a great battle plan for you. Just walk around it with everybody once a day for six days. On the seventh day, walk around it seven times, blow the horns, have everybody shout. That's the whole battle plan right there. Does that make sense? But he heard the voice of the Lord. He never reached question five. Gideon goes up against the Midianites, the Amalekites, and then it says, and all of the enemies of Israel from the east with 22,000 soldiers. He's like, wow, that's a lot. No, he's probably outnumbered 10 to 1. God comes to him and says, I think I have a problem with your army. And Gideon's like, yeah, no, we don't have enough guys. He's like, no, no, you have too many. He reduces him down to 300. 300. There is no way you can look at that and make sense of it. And he delivers Israel with 300 soldiers. Because he heard the voice of the Lord, he never reached question number five. What is God saying to you that maybe makes no sense, but he's not stuttering?